So brand as a moat. Brand, it's, it's of course one of the most difficult moats to achieve because even though anybody can build a moat, most people, most companies, you know, never achieve a, a brand that is universally known, loved, and understood. It's hard work, but turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them up. On this episode of the Marketing Millennials, I sit down with Pete Blaha, the founder and CEO of Winter and CXL. Winter helps B2B companies convert more best fit customers, and CXL is the world leader helping determined marketers become the, the top 1% in the world. He is also the one of the best marketing followers on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm pleased to welcome Pete to the podcast. Hey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. Super excited for this conversation. I've I've been following you on Twitter, LinkedIn. I've been scoping out your website for years. So excited to get this conversation on, on the books. I want to start off and say, how did you even get into marketing? Like, what was your journey like? I actually came from sales. So I was working at a, let's say, online real estate portal, kind of like a Zillow type of thing. But the business uh, business model was advertising. So I was selling advertising. And I was good at what I did, so they made me head of sales. And then they said, oh, why don't you do marketing as well? I'm like, mm, sure. And didn't know much, but... Well, I can figure it out. And uh, then SEO and PPC, Google AdWords, uh, became suddenly my thing. This was in like 2006. So then, you know, then I found it much more exciting than sales and uh, never looked back. How has your sales experience like helped you in marketing? Like what is it? Has it been like the root of like a lot of like your great marketing you've done? Well, it's hard to say because I don't know what it would have been like without. You would think so. A lot of my career has been also entrepreneurship. You know, I have multiple companies that I run. So sales is crucial for getting clients. You need to sell yourself, you know. My first business that I started was um, was uh, basically an SEO agency. SEO, I, I did adverts too. So PPC and SEO. So I sold myself as a consultant. I was a freelance consultant for years. And then when I started CXL, obviously, number one sales guy there. Right now, I'm number one sales guy for uh, winter. And so definitely, definitely useful skill to have. How did you start um, like becoming different in the, like your career? Like, How did you start standing out um, from other people? I can't say that I had a strategic perspective on this for the most part. But there is a thing that always made me, let's say, stand out in, uh, among my teammates, which was being extremely proactive. So I was always an entrepreneur before, you know, I, I, before I started my own businesses. 
I was always the guy who came with the most ideas, always prepared, always like, oh, we should do this, and then we should do that, and then we should do this other thing. Even in, in college, you know, I was a class president. I was a um, head of my student organization society, various student organizations where I quickly emerged uh, as, a, as a leader. So, yeah, being proactive has, has served me well. So where did the idea for CXL come and then eventually winter? Like, where did these, like, ideas come from? What, what gap did you see and what were you trying to fill with them? When I started CXL, actually, I just wanted to start a marketing blog, but I needed to niche down. So w- what I was basically doing was I was checking out different marketing blogs in different subcategories of marketing. And then I noticed that when it came to conversion optimization, the existing blogs were, well, A, there weren't that many, maybe, you know, five, six decent ones, and they weren't that good, kind of mediocre. And so I was like, huh, I can do better. I can totally dominate this niche. And so based on what the competitors were doing, I formulated my competitive strategy. It's like, which game I'm going to play and how I'm going to win this game. And, and, and so I did. So it was kind of an accident. So I wanted to start a blog. And since conversion optimization was not very competitive, I went with that one. It wasn't that my dream was to start a conversion optimization blog or an, or, or an agency. The agency came a year later when my blog achieved success and people wanted to hire me as a consultant. Um, and now, now, now the agency is called Spiro today. It's, you know, it's one of the biggest and the best uh, conversion optimization, customer experience optimization agencies around. And winter came after solving my own problems. So we, we, in 2016, I started CXL Institute, which now is just CXL, an e-learning company. And we have some 60-plus different online courses, plus we have you know, webinars and various landing pages, all very copy-heavy. And in order to increase the conversion rates on those pages, I had to improve the words. However, what's wrong with the words? How can you improve something if you don't know what the, what the problem is? You can only improve if you know and understand the problems. And so I started to look for a tool that could help me with this, to tell me what's wrong with my copy. And since I didn't find any, I decided to solve it myself and build a tool. I was like, how the hell is that this not solved yet? So, yeah, solving my own problem. Yeah, I mean, that's usually like the best entrepreneurs come from solving a problem that already exists. And then you kind of more passionate about that as well. I want to dive into that competitive strategy you had. Like, how did you formulate like a competitive strategy to be different from all other blogs? Like, how did you, how did you mm-hmm. frame that? In terms of the blogging strategy. So first step, I was analyzing what are the competitors doing? Like, what kind of blog posts are they writing? What are they good at? What are they not good at? So. Most of them were writing, let's say, this medium form or even short-form articles, like three to 500 words, and very generic advice, not very many um, examples. They made claims, let's say, oh, you should do this to convert better without backing it up with any proof. And so I formulated my strategy. I can do way better by writing more thorough articles, longer articles adding more detail, proving, um, backing up any claim with proof by linking to research studies or case studies and things like that. 
And then I also looked at some other market stats out there, which said that, uh, for instance, blog posts that have at least 1,800 words or more get more backlinks, get more social media shares. And I was like, oh, okay, so good. So I'm, I set myself an editorial standard that every single article I write is, has to be around 1,800 words. And my other strategy there was that in order to make this a success and build a business around it, I need to make a name for myself. And so I also made sure that uh, if I want to you know, position myself as, a, as the expert, I need to show my expertise. Uh, so that was a, a, a crucial, cru- crucial part in, in determining how, how, uh, how I you know, write the content. And third, I wanted to build an audience, which is very important for me. So I was, from day one, I was optimizing for building an audience, capturing emails, essentially, building an email list. And success came fairly quickly, fairly quickly. So within one year, uh, I had a monthly re- readership of 100,000 people. That's amazing. I, I want to dive into like, with all these like pe- people coming to you about conversion optimization and stuff like that, what are like a lot of them doing wrong? Like, why aren't they standing out? And like, why are they not becoming different than their competitors? Because I think this is like a, a big problem is like, so many people are trying to fit in instead of be different. Yeah. Right now, today, in 2021, I think competition in business, uh, I guess in all areas, is just, it's, uh, it's rougher than ever, ever before. The barriers of entry that were there maybe 20 years ago are gone. So Constant Contact, the SaaS company, when they started in the early 2000s, their billing engine for subscription billing, it cost like a quarter million dollars, $250,000 to put a subscription billing thing up. And today, I mean, five minutes after signing up with Stripe, I can accept recurring payments. You know, it's so easy. So, and that's uh, low tech, no no code, all these things that are available. So it's never been easier to start a business and to, to grow a business. And so that means that there's never been more competition than there is today. Even in manufacturing, you know, all these direct-to-consumer case studies, you know, from... Uh, Dollar Shave Club to Warby Parker, all like all these names that you know are only only possible because you know Alibaba essentially. You know, like the moat of the old days that you needed to have your own factory is, is just not needed anymore. So there's ne- never been more competition, is what I'm trying to say. Yet there's never been more sameness either. You would think that now that we have so much competition, companies are trying hard to be different. In reality, there's just more, more sameness going on. The way I define sameness is that these companies basically are too similar to each other in terms of how they talk about each other or like themselves. Uh, they're poorly differentiated, differentiated in their branding, very vanilla. They have the same features. And then uh, they, they describe themselves as if they're the only one doing what they're doing, you know. Let's look at email. Email marketing is a category which is super saturated. It's like they say, "Oh, send beautiful email newsletters," and you know you can track open rates. Like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> so, so obviously, people, you can only say these plain vanilla things if you're the category leader. You know, if you're Mailchimp or you're Salesforce or you're like this category leader, then you can talk about yourself in, in this boring, unflattering way. But if you're a challenger brand, and most of us are, 
and you just say these boring things that people expect, oh, it's not really going to go anywhere. And, and wh- why are we same? Well, three key reasons, I think. So one is that a lot of companies differentiate on features. You know, if you're a SaaS company, you say, oh, we have these features and you don't, you know? So that actually does not work because everybody can and will copy all your features if they're good. You know, we're fleeting on Twitter. So anything that Snapchat had was you know, gone or like Clubhouse, we have Twitter spaces and Twitter now added all the Substack features. So what's going to happen to Substack now? Substack has, you know, much less things now going on now that Twitter acquired uh, whatever it's called, review or whatever it is. So anyway, so if you're competing on features, it's a very hard life, right? Anybody can and will copy you. And if if the copying uh, person company has better distribution, you're you're screwed. Two is that people have, have no original ideas. Most of us are not original thinkers. We can only imagine things that we've seen before. Which you know, innovative ideas don't do well in focus groups. Or if you if you talk to people about innovative ideas, they're going to say this is bullshit. I don't want this. You know, Steve Jobs knew this. He said, "People don't know what they want until they see it." Because people are really terrible at judging innovative ideas. So what most companies do is that they just look at the competition. They look at what already exists. Then they say, "Oh, let's do that, but maybe a little bit better or different. Uh, not not really even different." Let's do that, but like maybe add our own flair on top of it. But they they really don't add their own flair. They're really doing what what they've seen before. So copying the competition. And third reason is that the message of customer centricity has really worked. Companies are actually, for the most part, at least in tech. I don't know about agriculture or some other industries. Uh, But in tech, companies are very customer centric. They do user research, they have uh, you know, consumer insights teams, et cetera, et cetera. So the result of that is that you're interviewing users about the problem. Oh, what is the problem you have? And oh, the jobs to be done, interview. Oh, da, 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 da. And so you get insight, and then you're solving that customer problem, right? But so does everybody else. So all your competitors are also doing customer interviews. And so the insights you get from consumers are all category-level insights. Uh, there's this famous case study about uh, Tesla doing focus groups for their uh, uh, Model X, interviewing moms who are normally buying minivans. So what do they want in a roomy car to you know, drive kids around? And all the insights they got were the same as Toyota Sienna would get. You know? So basically, oh, yes, I've got you know, kids here and you know, soccer balls over there and things like that. So like very... If you want to build a differentiating brand and you just follow consumer research insights, you're going to end up just like everybody else. And it has happened. You know, like you walk to any ho- into any hotel and it's identical. The lobby looks the same, identical. You walk to a hotel room. They have, you know, the, the lotion and the soap bar, uh, shower cap, and no toothpaste. They're all identical. So Hyatt, Marriott, Hilton... What is the differentiating factor between them? They have maybe different rewards cards. That's it. You know, otherwise it's, it's the same. So let's flip that and say like, what are like ways that brands should be doing it? So like, like you said, for like copying ideas and competitors, like what is your thoughts on like 
taking ideas from different industries that are not the same as your industry. Like, um, say you're in market, like marketing and you steal an idea from like biology industry, like just the, this kind of weird example, but like what? Yeah. I mean, you can do, you can, of course, take inspiration from whoever, you know, and, or copy, if you will. The problem is that if other people can also easily replicate that, they will. If that seems to be working, they will. So if it's like superficial elements, like we have this service or we have this, we do, we have this feature, they can and will copy this. So anything that's easy to replicate, they will. So what is not easy to replicate? So this is what we would call moats, right? So you should think about moats. And the easiest moat that everybody has access to is brand. So brand is a moat. Brand. It's, it's, of course, one of the most difficult modes to achieve because even though anybody can build a moat, most people, most companies, you know, never achieve a, a brand that is universally known, loved, and understood. It's hard work, but you need to be deliberate. I mean, small business can also compete on brand by being totally differentiated in their messaging, in their point of view, something that they believe in, a cause they're fighting for. And I think more wins, for especially for small businesses, are to be had on the edges. So you say risky things, even controversial things, that big brands cannot afford to do. So my, one of my favorite examples here is a commodity brand called Black Rifle Coffee. So they sell coffee beans, which is a commodity, completely undifferentiated product. If we put their product... Next to other coffee brand products, they use the same beans. It's good. The beans are good, but so is everybody else's, right? And what they do is that they compete on their world worldview that they love guns and military and you know things like that. People who love America, coffee for people who love America, which sounds a little racist if you ask me. Uh, it has that weird undertone in in there, but it's very magnetic to a certain demographic. It's repelling. Anonymous demographic, and that's how you compete. So brand is one. Of course, there's also you can you can differentiate by through innovation by actually making a better product, which requires a lot of R and D. You know, which is a lot of what pharmaceutical companies do. It requires so much money. Or like Tesla, their you know batteries and tech in their cars is objectively better for now. Obviously, every single car maker is coming after Tesla. So can Tesla keep up the innovators game and be Better five years from now, too, remains to be seen. Small businesses really can't play the innovators game unless you have a mad scientist working for you, creating some, some crazy stuff. And then there are other modes that typically only big companies with a lot of money have, you know, like networks, network effects or switching costs or uh, you know, economies of scale, you know, talking about Amazon and Walmart and things like that, where you, know, you, can, you can set up a store like Walmart, but you can't have Walmart-like results just by looking at like Walmart. Or like my favorite example is like so many e-commerce companies try to copy Amazon. So Amazon's conversion rate, e-commerce conversion rate is, I think it, uh, for Amazon Prime members, is like 70%. So if, if an average, your typical e-commerce conversion rate is about 2 to 5% range, so that means that Amazon's conversion rate is like, you know, at least 15 times better or, or more, you know. So, but is the design of Amazon 15 times better than your average e-commerce website design? I don't know. 
So if you just copy the superficial elements of how Amazon runs its business and expect to get Amazon-style results, it doesn't work. You know, there's nothing happens. So Amazon's success is in other stuff, like um, scale and, and, and all these other things. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, is, uh, it is not easy. It is not easy. But anybody can start with unique messaging, a unique point of view. And uh, you know, obviously, if you're a small business, niche the fuck down. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, the simple thing of like standing out. I think like the thing is that I had Rory Southern on my podcast, and he basically said like, I think this is a big problem, Morgan, too, is because nobody gets fired for being logical. So like, they never get for being like oh, I come up with the same idea as a competitor. But the thing is, like, the reason why they don't get fired is, like, if they even took a moonshot and they fail, they, the, the downside to get fired is very exactly. high. But, like, the moonshot for getting, for, like, saying something logical and failing, it's like, oh, they had a backing. Like, it worked for Amazon, so it should have worked for us. So, they, like, they, they have... Le- logical backing to have totally if you say safe and predictable things on your mm-hmm. website about your business you know like oh we send beautiful you know send beautiful email newsletters and truck open rate it's very safe things nobody will call you out on it it's inoffensive and beyond criticism nobody nobody can say anything bad about it of course the downside is that nobody will keep a shit about that messaging either if you're the category leader, great. Like, look at Mailchimp today or Shopify website is boring as fuck. You know, like the the messaging they say such neutral things. Obviously, they have a legal team bigger than your, your marketing team, who is like weighing every word. So you, God forbid, you know, you don't say something that we can sue you for. You know, so. But if you're if you're an upstart. And you say safe and boring things. People who want safe and boring things, they already got one. They're not looking for you. That won't serve you as a small yeah, business. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to to me because like this is why small businesses have an advantage because the upside of a small business is very high, and it, you already have like a low side of like you, you're going to fail. You're going to fail any. You can fail anyway, and most businesses fail. So like like that's why. Market marketers and companies have a hard time because they're not like metriced off of like what investment bankers are. Like investment bankers can take these risks of shorting stocks because the the downside of shorting a stock, like they get paid out to short a stock. So like if they make more money, they get they can make more risk. For us as marketers, we can't. Like if we take a big moonshot in a company, we get paid the same. They're not going to give us a million dollars to get make a moonshot. Like you know what I mean. Like I think that's the biggest problem in marketing too is like the compensation structure because like going out like a CMO like if they're going to make a moonshot prediction in the company, they're going to get they might get maybe in bigger companies they have stock packages, but in smaller companies they're going to get paid one hundred fifty whatever, $300,000 for making the, the, a logical decision or a moonshot decision. They're not going to go get a million dollars for making a amazing decision right off the bat where a financial investment person, they make a million dollars, they get commission on it, they get paid on it. So they have more incentive to make a decision. I think that's the problem with like a lot of marketing is the compensation too. 
is that I'm not saying marketing should all get paid more, but it just, that's what limits him. It's like, I could get fired or I could just say something basic and just keep my job and look smart if it succeeds. Like I, I won't look stupid if it doesn't succeed because I, I came with the, the backing. Well, how, I mean, there there might be, of course, people who are terribly worried about getting fired and like the impact on your livelihood. But like, if you get fired for trying something audacious and daring, I would say that you can fucking milk that and make a great story out of it. Uh, yeah, obviously, I haven't been looking for a job for a long time, but uh, it definitely seems to be a job seekers market right now. If you're good. You know, if you're a loser, it's always a hard time. But yeah, good. I want to talk about because you you talk a lot about how like copy is like a big differentiator. Like I think so many businesses don't understand like the importance of like co- great copywriting. So I want you to dive into that because I think like I don't see many companies like putting out like for an expensive copywriter, like to be part of their company or like even invest in like things, tools to like make their copy better. So I want you to dive a little bit in that. Cause I think that could differentiate people so much, just like simply just changing copy, like on their website and on their emails on every part of their business. Yeah. Copy is just how you communicate your brand, your positioning, your key messaging, probably it's just a way for you to communicate that. So if you're competing on brand and you have a unique point of view, a strategic narrative, just copy is how you communicate, right? So I think every every company takes that seriously, but they, they might not think of it in terms of like copy. You know, differentiating through copy doesn't doesn't work in the sense that differentiation comes first. So it's, you know, differentiation is not a line of copyright. First, you, you bake it into your DNA. You're actually different. And then you communicate it through copy. So when, when we look at the conversion rates of companies, so getting new leads, new clients, and so on, how does that happen? It happens by your prospects coming across the words that you say about yourself, the value that you communicate, your value proposition. That's all words. It is by far the you know most important lever when it comes to converting customers. Remove all your words from your ads and and your your website, and you have nothing. People who say, "Oh, video, yeah, video is great." However, so if you look at your web analytics, and let's say you have words on your website and a video on your homepage, on average, only ten percent of the visitors will will play the video. Ten percent. So that means the video is always supplemental text not a replacement for it and so if you want to convert more customers more leads and then and all that stuff you need better words and i mean i agree with you that the importance of better copy is not as widely it doesn't get the, the the recognition it should get and i see how so so much of copywriting is is either delegated to the most junior levels or, or outsource to you know freelancers while brand is your most important thing and your your key moat that you could build. You really want to outsource it to a cheap freelancer from Upwork? I don't know, man. <laughs> I I have an interesting question for you. Is like 
like how do you talk to people because like about like because a lot of companies they have to hit revenue targets and revenue targets usually is the reason why like a lot of people don't focus on this brand moat like because they're like oh i have to hit my sales target this month and this month and this month what do you tell the companies who like say like i want to differentiate but i have to hit my revenue number too like how do you like implement brand while trying to hit revenue numbers too because i think a lot of people because a lot of companies mess this up because they're like oh i need to send out all these emails but they don't think of like sending all these emails right now can affect brand affinity three years down the line well for sure the way we judge somebody's performance has to take that into account. And if, if your job is to just make revenue this month, it's very hard to to do anything else. So the incentivization and that needs to be just rethought. And the way I think about it is like, if you're Nokia in 2007, you know, like, oh, we're selling our, you know, our phones and you, you're just not seeing how you're going to, how people are coming from behind you and just you know eating you alive so it, it's it's a short-term perspective if if you're not really taking it seriously i mean overnight nothing changes like especially if you're a bigger company you know whether you do it right you do the right things you know often as they say you know your your a great quarter you just had is because of the things you did four years ago it takes, it takes a while to see results uh, for a strategy to see if a strategy is working, you need to give it at least two years or it's premature conclusions. So it's complicated. So the, the way I think uh, I see it is that differentiation and your, your strategy as a company, it needs to be owned by the CEO. The CEO needs to own it and say, we're going this way. And thinking five years ahead, Considering what's all happening in the market, the new trends and, and what the competitors are doing and so on, what is the game we play and how we're going to win it? And if you're not, you know, top three in your category, you're a challenger brand, ooh, and if differentiation is not in your strategic roadmap and building moats, I think it's a shitty strategy. And obviously, if you are building towards the long-term thing, then the way you measure your people also has has to be, you know, it needs to be reflected in your performance assessment, in your OKRs and all that. We talked about this a little bit where you talked about like testing with like focus groups and stuff like that and how it's not like you'll probably get the same answers as your competitors. How do you like start taking your messaging and testing? Like say you're trying to like, be different and stand out like how do you start taking that messaging and test it before scaling it out to the whole business like what are some strategies yeah yeah so there are experimentation is 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 the key word here it's very easy to quickly test some messaging social media is a great outlet that's how i test where i test a lot of my messaging to see what tends to resonate what what gets people to you know, not their heads virtually, like basically engagement, social media engagement. Yeah, you, of course, you are your own benchmark. You need to see if anything goes above or below average. Same with testing anything through your own email list. You know, you, you build a new page with new messaging. There's an offer. See how that goes. Qualitative research is, is the key here. You need to understand your users, blah, 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 blah. blah. But the, when you come up with that new messaging, you need to do conduct message testing. 
So basically, you put that messaging in front of the people that you're trying to influence. You can do that with Winter. Uh, you can do that manually. You can hire a, a, a big as expensive uh, market research firm. Many ways to do that. Um, yeah. And then once you get qualitative affirmation that this is what, what works, next step, you can validate qu- quantitatively by putting it in your ads, driving uh, paid traffic to uh, particular messaging. If, if it's like dramatic brand change for a business, then ov- obviously it's, it gets more complicated. It's hard to split test a brand. In micro ways, you can definitely do it very iteratively. I love what you guys are doing at Winter because I think like a lot of people make assumptions in marketing that like this is exactly what your your customer actually wants and they make assumptions about doing things. And I think with Winter, for example, you can actually see like, okay, if I say this word versus this word, and a lot of people don't even realize like a simple word change could change a whole sentence like i was talking to one of my friends who does like market research and they were i forgot the exact word but they the customers were saying this word which meant the same as another word but the customers weren't saying like that word they were saying this word and the managers and say they say oh yeah we're saying the same thing as what the customers are saying they like no you aren't the customers are actually using this word you're not saying An example I recently came across was a marketing agency selling to B2B SaaS companies saying, we're a performance marketing agency. And the customers are like, so if it's a paper performance, then why do you charge for money? Thinking that performance marketing is pay per performance, which it is not, but it just goes to show that it just this terminology does not have a universally understood definition. Everybody makes up their own mind what it means. So... In those regards, it's either educate, educate, educate. If it's a long-term vision that you absolutely need to use this terminology, or you just say something else. We do, you know, measurable pay-per-click marketing or whatever the hell you're doing, you know. So absolutely, if people misunderstand what you are, it goes the wrong way. And it also reflects in churn. Just recently, I signed up for a SaaS tool that I churned two days later because I had a completely wrong expectation of what it what the tool is. The tool seemed totally fine if they would would have pitched it as something else. So it's it's kind of like um you know Bonjoro, mm-hmm. like send video sales messaging. It's like, so I signed up for I think it's SendSpark, which is basically you know close more close more deals by sending video messages to your prospects. So I signed up for that one. But it's actually like Loom. So if they would position themselves as, we're cheaper Loom, I, I might stick with them. But I already had Loom. So like this thing, I mean, that's, that's not, nothing new value, no new value to my life, I churned. And it's, it's because there was a complete mismatch of expectations. So I love this concept of message market fit. So message market fit is that you tell the prospect, somebody who's considering to sign up with you, your target audience, tell them something that they want, something that gets them to nod their heads, you know? And once you discover what the messaging is that really resonates with the target audience, then they're more likely to sign up with you and then product market fit ha- ha- happens after. Then, of course, you need to deliver the good. If 
the messaging and product, the mismatch, obviously, that will be a quick churn. An example here is came across this HR software. If you tell me HR software, I'm already like, Ugh, yawn, moving on. But then they, they led with two messages that really resonated with me that said, hey, every new employee, when they you know, start on day one, they get signed up to all the shared tools like Figma and et cetera. And we ship them a laptop automatically as part of your HR payroll software. I'm like, oh, that's fucking nifty. My, you know, Gusto doesn't do that. Or my ADP doesn't do that. So now I'm actually, those, those two things resonate with me. Obviously, that's also feature-based differentiation, which everybody can clone, and that's it's short-lived. But transient advantage is also good. It is fine, completely fine to have a transient advantage that you can milk for a quarter or half a year, you know. But, you know, you need to work hard to find one of those things that you say that up. Uh, stop people on their track in their tracks and they're like, ooh, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, would you would also I think what you just made a great point is that like what captured your customers like today doesn't mean what's going to capture your customers in next quarter. Like for example, like and I don't think people are doing this a lot too, is like and I this actually sparked something in my head is like seeing what messaging kept a customer and then looking like the messaging to like churn churn rate in the business and seeing like okay this might have got X amount of customers, but what is the churn percentage of this messaging versus that messaging? Like, I think that's a, a really interesting thing to test because a lot of marketers, they do stop at the sale when they measure marketing where like, like there's that LTV to CAC, but they don't do LTV of CAC to, to CAC for messaging. They just do LTV to CAC for channels, which if you go one step deeper and say like, what is it was the LTV to CAC or the... CAC payback or what, whatever what was the churn rate for this messaging of the software, like you might could find some cool insights on that to see like, oh, when we said get more leads for, for your video software, this was the churn, but when we change it to cheaper loom, like look at look how much we might've got less signups, but we kept 99% of our customers. Like nobody thinks like that. E- exactly right. I recently had a customer at Winter, it's a SaaS company, like a a startup. And based on the feedback they got, they changed their positioning from basically how they fit in and why somebody should buy them. And they were able to increase their pricing 10 times just by not really changing the tool. I mean, they did change their also their product backlog, what like roadmap. Uh, like what are they building when they had a had on uh, this aha moment, but they're even the the right messaging can help you increase your pricing and make more money but by, by like finding what is the thing that really resonates yeah I think I mean I'm going back to Rory Sutherland again because he just is a genius with this, but he talks about like psychological moonshots that you could do in your business where like Uber didn't make like the best feature, like something grandiose, but they, they, they made convenience and like expectation of your, your taxi being there that I can sit in the bar for three extra minutes. Cause I know that my taxi is going to be there in three minutes. Like they, they yeah. change product psychologically to make the moonshot happen instead of changing it feature wise. So like you could just change your product a slight bit by changing the way someone thinks about your product 
and that could be a moon, a psychological moonshot that can 10 X your business. Like, which I think is amazing. What kind of what you're saying now, but like if you can solve a, a better pain point for your customer, that is actually a deeper in rooted pain point, people will pay more to solve a bigger pain point. Like totally. A- totally. Uh, we were doing outbound sales for CXL e-learning company, pitching as you hit a marketing, whatever titles, right. And saying, Hey, Bring us on and we'll train your marketing team to have better skills. And it turned out that that messaging was as a dud because skills of their team members is just a, not an not a issue that marketing managers care about. They're like, yeah, I mean, I mean, sure, in principle, I care about employee you know, training and development, but it's not, a, not an active problem that somebody is solving and wants to throw money at, especially if I'm coming knocking cold. If you come in and knocking cold, you need to come with a burning, burning problem or, or a desired gain. And what, what did these people want instead? Well, they want to recruit top talent. That's what they want. They're ready to throw all the money to bring in the best PPC guy, but they don't want to train the PPC guy. So good perfectly offered a similar product there. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you make your, I mean, you, even if your product is doing something you really wanted to do it doesn't mean like your messaging has to tie to like exactly what you think it the goal of your marketing like you, maybe you have a burning desire as an employee like me to get my skills like help more but it doesn't mean like that's the marketing manager's problem like mm-hmm. like you can just because it's your problem doesn't mean it's the marketing manager and they're the ones spending the money this has been great. And I want to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can find you and how they can, because I think winter is a cool tool. So what about where they can go use winter and anything you want to drop right now? Yeah. With, with winter, anybody can see how their messaging is landing on their target audience, winter.com. But I'm very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So post there daily, sometimes very controversial stuff. So come check it out. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I've been following you for a while and you definitely, the reason why I see your following growing is because you definitely, like, and I, I say this with social media all the time, like you have to say things that are out there to make your raving fans flock to you. Otherwise you're not going to have raving fans. Like, Yeah. If you say soft things on social media that some people, some people, uh, some days when they're angry, they might say silly things give it to them straight you say strong opinions like people say stupid shit and some people really love that and those who don't love that they will also engage with you and so you win either way (laughs) i love it um well thank you for so much for being on the podcast I, i look forward to sharing this with everybody thank you so much 